and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephen M. Griffin, W.R. Irby Chair and Rowledge C. Clement Jr. Professor in Constitutional Law at Tulane University Law School. We will discuss his article, Optimistic Originalism and the Reconstruction Amendments, which will be published in the Tulane Law Review. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. I really enjoyed reading this paper and found it a really uh, rich and thought-provoking account of how we had to think about historical constitutional change. But I wanted to start with the title, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by optimistic originalism and sort of how that difference from differs from the alternative, whatever whatever that might be. Well, it is true, I think, that if you uh, read originalist literature in uh, the 80s and 90s in particular, uh, perhaps uh, centered around discussions, famous discussions by uh, Attorney General Ed Meese, uh, slightly influenced by uh, lectures by Justice uh, Scalia, but lots of the literature presented a somewhat... uh, Dower picture really associated perhaps with Raoul Berger and and Judge Bork of what originalism meant um, with respect to the Constitution. That is, it was one about limits and not so many rights. Uh, Judge Bork did allow for the legitimacy, for example, of Brown versus Board of Education, but not necessarily for an expanded form of equal protection, not necessarily uh, equal protection for women's rights, for example. Um, So you could have gotten uh, an impression of originalism as a very restrictive doctrine. Even the doctrine of incorporation was brought into uh, disrepute based on uh, somewhat old scholarship, but scholarship that Attorney General Meese picked up. All of this started to change in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, with the publication of Michael McConnell's uh, huge article on Brown, and then a lot of different research by a lot of different people, including people who may not have called themselves originalists, um, presenting a fundamentally um, sunny, uh, as I say, optimistic, that is to say, attuned to contemporary values. What what these people said was that if you look uh, carefully at the history of the Reconstruction Amendments and Reconstruction of the Civil War generally, what you would find is that the people in the lead positions, particularly on the 14th Amendment, had a very broad view of the rights guaranteed, particularly in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Now, this move in contemporary scholarship provided the foundation stone for what uh, became in this century, uh, 21st century, as a long run of articles of people arguing that the rights recognized in Section 1 could be fa- provide the foundation consistent with originalism for many contemporary decisions on racial equality, women's equality, gay rights. Uh, the list now is very long. So I'm sorry that's a little bit of a long introduction, but it's a transition in originalism to a view that originalism is consistent 
with a variety of contemporary Supreme Court decisions that were formerly thought to be inconsistent with. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit by talking about why the Reconstruction Amendments specifically are so critical to uh, this optimistic originalism. In other words, why, why were they so focused on those particular constitutional amendments and that particular point in history? Well, let's remember two historical facts, that Section 1, by its terms, is a restraint on state governments. This was very new in American constitutionalism. Never before had there been placed in the Constitution a direct restraint on what states can do. Let's also remember, although this is not my fact too, (laughs) let's also remember that states were the primary regulators of many different things with respect to Americans' personal life. Fact two was the rights, the so-called rights revolution, which really started before the Warren Court, but which is identified with the Warren Court and after. The rights revolution happened almost exclusively with respect to the Supreme Court making decisions, enforcing rights against state governments, either using the Equal Protection Clause or using the Due Process Clause and also using the Due Process Clause to incorporate nearly all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights onto the states. It's this enormous body of jurisprudence with respect to restraining state and local governments that was first cast into shadow or doubt by some uh, research that could be called originalist. And then later, uh, originalists have, more recently, originalists have changed their minds. This is, this is what I call optimistic originalism. So if I understand it correctly, then, at least one of the projects of optimistic originalism is to sort of say all of these kind of elements of the rights revolution are part of the original meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, Very much so. Very much so. And that's why it's, uh, I think, uh, particularly key that this movement acquired a lot of legitimacy, again, not necessarily from people who called themselves originalists, but people who are just interested, as they saw it, in setting the historical record straight about the specific topic of incorporation. But once you did that, and once you bought that idea, that opened a tremendous vista for reconciling the original meaning or intent, or however you want to put it, with the framers of the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments, with the Warren Court era and after. And that showed originalism in a completely new new light, which I call optimistic. Well, so what exactly do these optimistic originalists point to in the sort of language of the Reconstruction Amendments and the historical facts surrounding them to show that that's the right way of understanding what they originally meant. And I guess my corollary question is then, assuming they're right, like, what happened then? Well, this is really about reconciling originalism to a recent past, especially the Warren Court where it was thought to be inconsistent. It's about picking out at least one element of the Warren Court's jurisprudence and saying, in fact, there's no reason to abandon this jurisprudence if you are an originalist. Now, there's a different line of of, uh, research on almost every clause in Section 1, the Citizenship Clause. Then there's 
privileges or immunities, which is extraordinarily important to these scholars, the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. You could spend uh, actually three articles of the same length as mine <laughs> exploring the ins and outs of the scholarship on these three clauses. But basically, the idea is once you take a deep dive into the jurisprudential views of the people who were writing and actually adopting a section one of the 14th Amendment, the story goes, you will see that they meant what they said. This is something that originalists and even liberal originalists tend to say, you know, concentrate on they meant what they said. All of these clauses are extremely, arguably extraordinarily broad. And if we, originalism in its current form, um, enjoins us to pay close attention to the text and its original meaning. Hence, if general terms, broad terms are used, we follow those. And if they can be um, defensively uh, uh, rationalized, so to speak, as supporting contemporary decisions, well, that's, that's just uh, what the law says. Well, so my understanding is that at least one premise of of constitutional originalism, original meaning type originalism, is that constitutional provisions mean what people generally thought they meant when they were enacted. Um, Being kind of generous to the kind of optimistic originalist position that you describe, are they right that there were at least some people who were participating in the ratification of the Reconstruction Amendments and subsequent uh, legislation surrounding them that thought those amendments and legislation um, did or should mean what we think about them today? Well, that's arguably the strongest point that they make, that for each uh, particular point of contention between originalism and its uh, critics, Uh, there's at least one or two or three people who indeed embraced the um, apparent meaning, especially of the Privileges or Immunities Clause with respect to what's called incorporation that we've been talking about, and especially with respect to enforcing racial equality pretty much across the board uh, with respect to the Equal Protection Clause and also the general import of all the clauses, including Uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So uh, there were people in the 19th century who were willing to go uh, quite far, indeed, sounded very contemporary. Now, these are people who are now quoted over and over again, people like Thaddeus Stevens and James Ashley and Charles Sumner. These were people who held views that are very close or even identical to contemporary views about racial equality. Well, great. So why doesn't that seal the deal then? What's the problem? Well, the problem is perhaps introduced best by what you just said. You you said that originalism appeals to what people generally meant at the time. In other words, it's a sort of objective reconstruction of meaning that we're imagining a cinematic camera moving across hundreds or even thousands of people. And we're in effect dipping our historical tool in to figure out what they meant at the time 
But at the same time, in light of what I just said, we're also seem to be privileging the views of just a few people, the people that we like the best. That's really not what originalism promises. It promises an objective approach. We don't want to then sub substitute an approach that just picks out the people we like. In fact, in analogous terms and statutory interpretation, that uh, approach is rejected by the by textualists by the people who most resemble uh, constitutional originalists. So we wouldn't want to be picking and choosing, would we? We'd want to have a general approach to the evidence. But once we do this, we find ourselves deep within the disputes that the framers of Reconstruction were having with each other. A situation which is not that different from observing all of the differences in different points of view and criticisms that the framers had of each other in the 18th century. Now, I've got more to say there, but we'll start with the point that uh, we the promise of an objective approach, as you stated it, is subtly replaced by just relying on the people who we happen to like. That can't be right. So you go into this this argument in a lot of really interesting detail in the paper. I wonder if we could pick out one example that might sort of highlight the difference between the approach that these optimistic originalists take as opposed to what you think would be a more um, historically uh, informed way of, of approaching the question. I was thinking specifically, one example I really liked that you gave in the paper was about how they used the Civil Rights Act of, I think it was 1875, to reflect on the meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments. So maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of how they use it and what you think a better approach would be. Well, I do want to mention at this point that one of the big points that I'm trying to make in this article is that the method of that historians bring to an inquiry like this is fundamentally different than that of the originalists. And this point has, I don't think, been made as sharply as it could be. It has been made by historians, but originalists have had great trouble in understanding how what historians have been saying could even be a criticism of their project. One of the big points of my article is to illustrate in uh, as much detail as I can why exactly ignoring historical evidence is a problem for originalism. With respect to the 1875 Act, you're dealing with a act that is the product of this kind of advanced thinking by uh, Senator Sumner, and an act that would strike many people today as, as kind of contemporary and insisting that uh, equality uh, be followed, non-discrimination be followed, in places, let's say, of public accommodation, um, the kind of, of, of uh, legislative prescriptions we're familiar with that were in the Civil Rights Act of 18, 1964. But, but they were there. Sumner had these ideas to prohibit discrimination in places of public accommodation and including public schools in some of the drafts. He had this idea way back in 1870, when the act started to be introduced. He was, in fact, uh, dead when the act was passed. But this act and its supporters to originalists demonstrate that advanced ideas, 
equivalent to Warren Court ideas were advocated and that people readily embraced them. This doesn't, by the way, cover all of the points of uh, criticism uh, with respect to the Warren Court and Burger Courts that I referred to, because it doesn't really deal with the situation of discrimination against women. But you asked me, what's a central case being made here? And the central case that makes all of this plausible is that some of these people like Senator Sumner, again, had uh, very advanced ideas on how racial equality should be applied through the law. Why do you think we shouldn't look at the meaning of the law in that way? And what do you think a better way of thinking about what that law meant and what it meant in relation to the Reconstruction Amendments at that moment in time to kind of the general population or the kind of the relevant people, broadly speaking, would be? Well, the easiest, the quickest way for me to say it is that the presentation of these ideas by originalists is simply too one-sided. They're only covering one side of the debate. It's as if they want to embrace, of course, the views of Senator Sumner and his supporters and pay no attention to the constitutional objections raised by the people who opposed the act. Some of the people who opposed the act weren't necessarily evil Southern racists which is what uh, originalists often say. They were, in fact, fellow Republicans. Now, this introduces an interesting uh, issue. How could it be that Republicans, who are generally in favor of racial equality as the party who won the Civil War, passed the 13th Amendment, then the 4th, then the 15th, how could some of them be opposed to some of the implications, perhaps, of uh, the Reconstruction Amendments? Well, there's a story to be told here, but uh, basically... Uh, historians like uh, Michael S. Benedict, Pam Brandwine, lots of different historians have contributed to a deeper picture of Reconstruction, where some, and I would also mention a recent book by Laura Edwards, uh, you know, some Republicans wanted to change things with respect to racial equality, but they didn't want in that process to lose some of the fundamental elements of American constitutionalism that they liked the best, including ideas about federalism. Now, the 1875 Act, uh, you asked me to address, would have intruded on traditional notions of federalism. And it also arguably contravened one of the most important ideas that people kept adhering to, the distinction between rights that were civil rights, political rights, and social rights. Now, this is a distinction that no longer exists, but it very well illustrates uh, a legal idea that historians have always paid attention to, but somehow has dropped out of all originalist analysis. What exactly do optimistic originalists do with the fact that if the original meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments was consistent with our current sort of accepted interpretation of them, it sure seems like people were not following the original meaning of those amendments for an awfully long time. Like, how do they explain that? And what do you think the better explanation or better kind of way of thinking about that historical reality would be? Well, you know, Brian, this is where the kind of rubber meets the road. It's not just originalists who are perhaps put to the test by the failure of Reconstruction. If anything, the, the picture is somewhat of the opposite of what you just said. 
it's not that originalists feel they have to explain uh, the end of Reconstruction. They, they feel kind of indignant, as do many liberal originalists, because there are such people, and liberals in general. In fact, one of the things that makes optimistic originalism so popular and so widely shared is because there's a widely shared idea in the legal academy that uh, Reconstruction had the obvious purpose of guaranteeing racial equality across the board, but this purpose was frustrated. Now, there's uh, legal scholars don't much talk about why Reconstruction failed because they think, uh, I infer, they think that the reasons have nothing to do with the Constitution or any inherent limitations of the Reconstruction Amendments. They think they're undermined by people who just didn't believe in the ideals, the true ideals of the Republican Party, or had other issues they were concerned about, like economic growth or their own personal advancement in the Grand Administration. And the Grand Administration isn't often talked about in this context, even though it's absolutely critical for whether the Reconstruction Amendments would be enforced. I, I noticed that legal scholars don't like to talk about Grant or the fact that even he, he was president, even though he was a general supporter of Reconstruction, because his administration was compromised in various ways. And, it, and I infer to talk about his administration would, would mean that you might have to accept that Republicans had different ideals and some of their ideals were compromised by other principles that they had. So uh, optimistic originalism is, is as, as it were, trading on the very widespread belief among nearly all legal scholars that uh, the Reconstruction was betrayed, that, that it had, that it was set up. Everything was all set up for the achievement of racial equality in the 19th century, and then it was betrayed. And the betrayal uh, had nothing to do you see, with the Constitution. And therefore, when we had Brown versus Board of Education in the 20th century, we were restoring, you see, it's a restorationist idea. We were restoring the original true purpose uh, as it was uh, originally laid down. And if this sounds a lot like narratives that people tell about the 18th century, well, absolutely right. Uh, I'm not a fan of restorationism, but it's very popular among legal academics. In, in the paper, you talk about sort of other ideas that were also in the air informing the meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments, in particular ideas around federalism and sort of like implicit federalism constraints on the scope of federal power. How do you think that those informed the way that people actually thought about those amendments at the time? Well, here I think I can usefully talk about a big difference between the outlook of Republicans at the time during Reconstruction and our outlook. And this is something that I sort of knew about, but I didn't really appreciate the full, the full, its full significance. We evaluate any new amendment in light of how we think the judiciary might enforce it. That was certainly true with the last most consequential proposal, the Equal Rights Amendment. But Republicans had no experience whatsoever with a court that was activist or took an important role in defending individual rights. And we could see them as creating that role, but that wasn't their perspective. Their perspective was that they were 
empowering themselves and Congress. They were empowering Congress through these amendments to solve rights problems that existed at the time and in the future. This fundamental difference between how they expected the amendments to be enforced and our perspective is one of the strongest indications that you can't just import their meaning, their perspective today, and expect it to be parallel or to easily map over uh, our expectations. Uh, It's a completely different point of view on constitutional enforcement. And anyone who's ignoring this when they talk about the rights that we should respect and how they should be judicially enforced, that is a contemporary perspective on rights enforcement. And that should be flagged at the very least, and it practically never is in either originalist or non-originalist writings on these amendments. Well, you also had a really interesting anecdote and set of observations in the paper on the role of the New Deal court in the kind of evolution of constitutional and kind of constitutional legal thinking, as it were, Um, specifically in relation to the kind of invocation of sort of originalist arguments in litigation at one point and the court's response to those arguments in light of its own recent jurisprudence? Well, look, the, you know, one of the things to say is, uh, you know, where does this leave us? And um, I think a more living constitutionalist perspective would have to embrace that we've done some creative things on our own in the 20th century to, in effect, make up for both the vast difference between the 19th century world and our own, and also arguably to fill in gaps and to make choices that the uh, Republican reconstructors of the 19th century didn't want to make. They didn't want to, they wanted to enforce rights at the same time without intruding on uh, states' rights, let's say, put it, put it that way. But what if you, 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 you couldn't? What, what if you had to make a choice? Well, they didn't want to make a choice. <laughs> but in various ways, uh, federalism in that sense had already been weakened by the time Brown versus Board of Education came along. So we, we made that change on our own, so to speak, uh, in addition to junking obsolete ideas like the civil, political, social distinction. Well, in contradistinction to this kind of optimistic originalist approach you describe, what do you think would be a better or more kind of historically accurate way of thinking about how constitutions mean and change over time in practice? Right. The easiest way for me to approach that, uh, both easy from a short form perspective and easy so it doesn't cause any problems for my way of thinking (laughs) is uh, to look at it in terms of all three branches of government and keep in mind that I am not trying to justify especially anything the judiciary has done. From the perspective of all three branches over time, uh, any constitution or amendment is going to be strongly influenced by legal ideas prevailing at the time. But these legal ideas, not written in the text, may not survive uh, subsequent historical developments. 
when they don't survive, this inevitably changes the way, not necessarily that we interpret the text, we might not have occasion to interpret it, but it, it affects the way we look at the text perspective because our perspective is now different. So I feel a more historically grounded legal scholarship would accept these uh, fundamental changes in perspective and realize that uh, they should be used going forward as a basis for interpretation. Nobody would in the Supreme Court today would even think of proposing going back to the civil, political, social distinction for various reasons. It's just obsolete. And similar things happen when anyone proposes a strong states' rights perspective that gets called Confederate or worse. But uh, the fact that the 19th century Republican reconstructors, they believed very strongly in those ideas. I feel historical research can help, historical scholarship can help us accept that, in effect, times have changed. Well, so I'm inclined to find your account much more plausible and historically accurate than the uh, originalist alternative. But I can't help but wonder whether at least sometimes this sort of optimistic originalist myth or story um, might facilitate acceptance of constitutional change in the ways that maybe a more kind of hard-nosed, realistic way of looking at it might might not. I wonder if you think, like, from a kind of political standpoint, you ever it might ever be kind of okay to accept this narrative, even if it's not necessarily true, or at least kind of consider kind of biting our tongues every once in a while. Right. Uh, that's, that's an extremely deep question, Brian. I, I'm on the side of being more realist, but it would be a, it's a long story to explain why. Now, why not? Restorationism, as I call it, has been embraced in several different areas of constitutional law by the Supreme Court at different times. Uh, not only Reconstruction, but with respect to the Commerce Clause, for example, in those famous New Deal decisions, where they said, we're restoring the original uh, interpretation propounded by uh, John Marshall. Uh, legal scholars like Bruce Ackerman have done a lot to undermine that form of restorationism. Here I would call on a senior historian, Gordon Wood, who in effect argued that the more you do that, the more you're privileging only certain moments of the past. And by doing that, you're actually cutting yourself off from the full implications of your historical development. You're minimizing the contributions of people who had a lot to do with changing our ideas. People like Thurgood Marshall, for example, if we're talking about Brown. You're in effect minimizing their, their uh, contributions when you lionize these people that in many cases, when you're talking about the Republican reconstructors, they were kind of ordinary politicians who shared the ordinary ideas of their day. And I would never want to, or, uh, to um, ignore them, never but I do not want to idolize them and uh, in the process forget how the, the important contributions of people who in effect had to adapt their uh, general ideas to new realities. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on 
the program to talk about this uh, fantastic paper. Um, we only touched on a few of the ideas that you discuss in there. So I hope listeners will check out the whole thing. I found it really provocative and uh, thought-provoking, and I'm sure others will as well. Well, thank you so much, for Brian, for uh, hosting me. Uh, I, um, uh, I really appreciate it. Teamwork can do in my 